everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and now uh, the guy to the side of me, Vlad. Um, this is episode 54. I'm generally calling it Q1 Freestyle, and we're kind of going to go jump in and talk about what we've been doing, uh, what's going well, what's not going well. So, uh, so Vlad, let me go ahead and kick it off and ask you, how is your quarter one gone? Uh, it flew by, Dave, to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of things have been accomplished. A lot of uh, lessons have been learned, so to speak. But maybe to give you an overview of what uh, my focus at least has been. So a lot of you know me for Solus PLC, right? on the content that I've built on training in uh, PLC and HMI programming predominantly. And so the last quarter, we've been focusing a lot on getting out some content on PLC Next. Mm -hmm. So we've partnered up with uh, Phoenix Contact in uh, several ways to create a... So we've released a beginner's course, just like an introduction, last December. And we are, I would say, in the finishing stages of a much more complete course that covers PLC Next a lot better. And you don't see this on video right now, but I've got multiple PLCs like on my desk. I've got one with mm -hmm. multiple I.O. points. I've got another one with just a couple... <laughs> Um, I got another one on the floor. So there's just a lot of different hardware. And uh, the idea is to, again, we're going to release this, I would say, larger course than what we've done. And it's going to cover all topics when it comes to PLC Next. So from hardware, installation, how to put the system together, how to choose, you know, different I.O. points. Because, again, even for me, it's quite a bit different than, you know, the Rockwell platform. So there's its own nuances, how to configure it, how to go online with the controller and being able to program it. I would say, uh, I guess like a few learning points, the programming interface in, in general for PLC Next is similar to Codasys. And so if you're coming maybe from that background, it's going to be fairly straightforward. But if you're a pure ladder logics programmer, there's obviously the ladder logic you know, functionality on PLC Next, mm -hmm. but I think it's a lot more powerful in like structured text because it's been meant to to be programmed in uh, higher level languages. So anyways, that's what I'm kind of working on and finalizing this quarter to give you maybe some more updates. I had an interesting uh, or a venture that we've been pursuing for a while on the data side. I still think, and I, I guess I'm still a very firm believer that there's many ways that data in general, in manufacturing can be improved and can be leveraged, solve many, many different problems because I've worked on that, you know, in the, in the uh, several year, years before the, uh, my MBA that I did. But uh, I guess that venture is no longer being pursued. I, I think we've just been trying to do way too many things at the same time. Um, and so no longer working on that. And uh, yeah, so I would say a lot of my time has been spent primarily on Solus PLC and just other uh, personal activities. No, absolutely. So I appreciate that you're holding up all these PLCs. I feel like most people like don't see the banter between you and I when I joke about Vlad, don't trip over your PLCs as you go to get your cup of water. And then I go talk to people and we, we talk about, you know, the the four and a half million dollars of PLC wall behind Vlad. I keep saying that the uh, the price goes up with inflation as, as the supply chain demand or as the supply diminishes and the demand increases. But I'm like, what you guys don't see is like 40 PLCs by Vlad's feet that he has to try to not kick as uh, as he steps over those. Uh, but no, so I'm excited about the PLC Next course. We had a bunch of good conversation. I think it was last year 
uh, I was out in Harrisburg at the, uh, the the Phoenix Contact facility, and Zach mm-hmm. uh, Zach Stank was telling us about uh, kind of like the web services and the other things that they're doing on there. So I think the PLC Next is some interesting technology. Is there a set date or is there a time frame in which you hope to uh, to go and release that course? It's most likely going to be mid to late April. I think at okay. this point, you know, we have the content fairly figured mm-hmm. out. So it's only a couple of lectures when it comes to the content piece of the course. Uh, we're also mm-hmm. looking to launch kind of like an examination piece where if you want to be truly like certified, you would have to write up a program and obviously do like a short test. So similar to mm-hmm. what, you know, inductive automation has done on their platform and, on that front, we're still not, uh, I would say, as advanced as we would like to be for yep. the launch, but uh, that's coming. And like I said, mid to probably end of April is uh, what we're targeting at this point. Um, and maybe to give you like a little bit more uh, updates, like on the Solus PLC side, we've also mm-hmm. released an OPC UA course. We've been working quite a bit with getting some instructors on board. Again, I would say it's a, like from a learning standpoint, it's a fairly tedious process. I think that a lot of uh, individuals, including, you know, when I was just getting started with this, it's um, difficult to see this as like a full-time gig, right? So you kind of want to continue working as a systems integrator. You don't necessarily think that you'd be able to build these courses and kind of uh, grow it from there. But uh, Mm -hmm. it certainly has, at least like for me and Karim, you know, the, my right-hand man, so to speak. And, um, it's uh, it's just a lot of time, like recruiting people and making sure that they're interested in developing with us. They're working on topics that are, again, interesting to the industry and uh, making sure that we connect them with the right uh, resources. Absolutely. No, I think that that's important. And I, in the last probably couple of years, have just grown to appreciate how many people are putting out courses, you know both paid and free. I think looking at what we have now is so much better than we had 10 years ago. I mean, 10 years ago, we didn't have very much, right? There was maybe a couple of, you know, PLC programming courses and and not much else behind that. But now you're putting out, you know, two or three different series of hardware courses and some software courses, and you're looking to bring more people on. And there are probably four or five other groups also doing some substantial amount of work in the kind of training and learning. And the question that we always get, and especially in the robotics team that we just talked about is like, man, people want to get into it, but how can you find even reasonably priced resources in order to do so? You know, for a lot of people, five grand for a week of Rockwell training plus expenses is not reasonable in order to go and attend it. So I'm happy to find, to see more online courses. I'm happy to see in-person courses are also coming back. I don't know if it's, there are more of them and more people are teaching locally to themselves, or it's just mind knowing more people. So I see more people are teaching more of the courses, but I think generally speaking, all of these are, are extremely positive and, and I'm happy to see this. And I'm happy to know that, that you and Solis and Karim are going to continue to expand what you're doing in addition to the other folks um, in the industry also doing very good work. Uh, let, me, I, let me, let me, let me, I'm sorry, go ahead, Vlad. I, I was just going to comment. I, and I think like our industry seeing that as more and more of a positive, right. And Again, if Mm -hmm. we maybe draw a parallel to something like AWS, Amazon Web Services, and their Mm -hmm. cloud offerings, 
they offer a ton of learning materials for absolutely free, right? So obviously they've invested the time, they've invested the money, they have experts that support those platforms. And what they're seeing is that people who learn their platform ultimately use that at their employer and then generate profits for them. And I think slowly but surely the manufacturing industry is kind of seeing a similar shift. Obviously it's a lot slower moving, but I think we'll get to the point where, again, we've seen this with inductive automation. They have a really solid curriculum of, you know, knowledge base on how to use their platform. And that ultimately translates to engineers wanting to learn, wanting to apply the skills and going to employers and recommending something like Ignition over any other platform, despite even the possibility of those other platforms being better. It's just the fact that they've learned and they understand what needs to be implemented. So that's kind of like where I leave it. That's obviously we've been having conversations, yes. but I'm yes. not going to get into those details. What about you? No, no. I want to get absolutely. Your- yeah. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of in the same boat flat. It's, it's the, we, we go and we talk to people every week and we're on episode 54 and I'm over here. Like, how are we done with the, uh, with the end of March already? I would say that the Q1 is gone exceptionally fast, right? So, so both personally and professionally, there were a lot of goals that that I had. Uh, we made some decisions personally on, you know, a couple of places that we wanted to be, and we wanted to be there early in the season to be able to go enjoy. Uh, so, we were in Zion National Park uh, for a couple of weeks uh, last month. And yeah, so so we were there last month, and uh, it was good. It was peaceful. It's just a lot of driving to get there uh, when you decide to have Christmas in Florida on the beach. So uh, so we, we've done a lot of driving, and I've had a bunch of work travel in between. Um, I I think I was calculating. I think I have been on more flights in Q1 this year than I took all of last year uh, for business travel. Uh, There was already one time this year in which I was gone, uh, including the weekend. So I was gone for like 14 straight days because there was a wedding on the end. And I can already tell you the next week in April that in May that that's going to happen again because I'll be gone for two weeks and there'll be a weekend or there'll be a wedding on the weekend in the middle that I'll meet Beth. And then I will continue on to whatever events that that I am currently uh, or engagements I am currently committed to. And she will go back and uh, continue on with, uh, with the normal life. But it's been good. It's been very busy. Um, as you guys kind of to talk about on the shoulders of giants. So uh, you guys, I mean, I think almost everyone heard Max talk at some point uh, in the mid thirties of episodes in which he came on and he was talking about theory of constraints and he was talking about operational excellence. So I've known Max for about a year and a half and we have worked on a a handful of engagements uh, over the course of that time. And so we're currently in the middle of one or two engagements at the moment. And so he and I have been doing a bunch of work. And while we were doing this work, all, not all that dissimilar to how the Manufacturing Hub podcast came to be with Vlad and I of, we're having all these great conversations. We should find a way to record them for posterity. And because we hope other people will like them, Max and I, you know, started sitting down and we're like, yeah, let's do this. And we kind of knocked out the first four episodes and we got episode five and six that uh, <laughs> that we did after a very long day on site. But uh, it's nice because they're very organic conversations. Um, it is much more kind of uh, technical, right? It's more of the how do we do the implementation conversations as opposed to the kind of mid to higher level conversations that we have here. And honestly, it's like I go back and I listen to him, Vlad. And it's like Max and I are literally just sitting here having a conversation. In fact, many of them are 
we just got off the call with a client or we just left the site with a client. And this is the thing that we were working on at the client site. And we've talked about it for eight hours today. So let's go talk about it for, uh, for a little bit longer. So that has been super positive. Um, as I said, I've been working on a couple of client engagements that have resulted in me uh, being on site, working with them either for a short period of time or a longer period of time. And I have a couple of other client engagements that I am working on at least substantially remotely at the moment. And, and honestly, all of those are have gone very well. I don't know if it's the I'm articulating what, what I'm doing and what we're looking to do better. I don't know if it's part of the goal that I had throughout the course of last year of find better clients, because sometimes clients are very frustrating. Um, but um, it's all seemed to go very well. And, uh, and generally, it, it's been a very positive uh, Q1 for me. Uh, as, as we reach kind of the end of it, I, I look back and professionally, I'm like, if you could tell me that on March 30th, we're at our current point, I would have been, I would have been very pleased, right? So I'm pleased where we are. I'm pleased with the opportunities ahead and kind of everything that we're looking at. So um, it's, it's been a very good Q1. Uh, Q1 last year for us was, uh, was a little bit slower uh, for a variety of reasons. And so Q1 has been very fast. And again, I'm not quite sure how it's, uh, how it's the end of March already. And, uh, and we're talking about it, but so I would say professionally, um, it, it's been a big positive. Um, I, I would say personally, it's uh, it's gone good as well. We, we've had a bunch of plans, as I've kind of mentioned, um, and so far we've, we've generally hit those plans. Uh, there have been a couple of mornings after I've gotten in on a late night airplane that I'm like, I'm just going to go sleep through the morning and I will become a human after about four cups of coffee later in the day, um, which, which is positive. Uh, and then one of the things that has, has been a, a bit of a strange transition uh, I think mostly after not being gone for an extended period of time or for extended period of times in the previous years is kind of the, I'm on site, you're in the fire, you're kind of working on all of those things. And then you get back home and, and it's more relaxed and you have emails and things that you have to do, but you're like not working on the physical thing in front of the client. So that the stress isn't there. And so uh, it, it's been a bit strange kind of flip-flopping back and forth as regularly as it has been between being on client sites and kind of working that versus not being on client sites and having more flexibility and freedom, but also having an endless amount of emails and proposals and, and to-do lists and, and conversations and kind of all of those things. So it's been an interesting kind of, of swap back and forth that I personally hope uh, well, I'm going to have to get better at it or I'm just going to go insane as we get, uh, as we get further into the year. Are there maybe, you know, Dave, like, could you share with us maybe three interesting improvements that uh, have occurred that you've seen like at plants? Or, again, because I'm trying to tie this back to the conversation, you know, we we had with Max and mm-hmm. theory of constraints in general in trying to optimize like a bottleneck. I'm curious to hear mm-hmm. maybe some stories that have resulted from, let's say, these three months of work or maybe even talk to us about some of the goals and obviously not getting into the confidential details, but I'm curious what kind of uh, results you're seeing. Absolutely. So, so we, we can't specifically call out some of them because I know the, those guys listen to the show. So I will go ahead and wave to, uh, to you guys know who you are. Thank you for, uh, thank you for listening. Um, 
Uh, I'll give you like a couple of generalizations, right? That that is not just with the one that I'm working on in Max with, with Max. So uh, most of the time, I go in and I have conversations with clients, and I go, I go and I talk to operators and folks on the floor, and it's the same frustrations, right? It's the frustrations of, hey, there aren't enough people here, so we need to go hire more people. Now, there could be three people on a shift or 50 people on a shift. Everyone I go talk to, they feel like we need more people to do the work. So you go down the path and, and you talk about what, what I posted about a couple of weeks ago on LinkedIn, this negative feedback loop, right? So you, you, your highest skilled workers feel like you need more people. And then you go to the market and you can't find skilled workers because they don't exist or you can't pay for them or you have very specific equipment and you're going to have to train those people, right? So you hire less skilled workers and you do a poor job onboarding because most facilities don't do a good job onboarding. And then after you do a poor job onboarding, you basically thrust this brand new super green employee to your highest skilled workers and saying, well, you said we need more people. So here's another person. You train them. There's no checklist because you didn't build a checklist. Basically, good luck, which causes more stress on the most high skilled workers, which make them feel like they need to go through the process of uh, they need to go through the process of hiring more people. Right. So. I, I have been on two or three client sites this year and literally the exact same negative feedback loop occurs. And there'll be multiple times so when, when we had Max on, he talked about a current reality tree, right? So we, we go through and kind of scope out all of the negative effects that most companies have. And so uh, I have had a number of conversations, both in person and not in person. And you kind of like show them that you kind of like show them the loop and they're like, oh my God, this is exactly what happens in our facilities. So one of the diametric changes uh, that kind of Max and I have gone down the process of is that there is five to maybe 15% of the things that you do that are actually important to be able to look at the flow and move an organization along. So when I say flow, it's basically the process flow from orders through raw materials, through operations, through, we can call them finished goods and kind of shipping out to the customer. So that's the flow and the, the concept of theory of constraints um, and, also, uh, and also Six Sigma, it, it's all a flow concept. So if it doesn't it positively infect, affect the flow, it is no longer important. So you suddenly go from people saying, hey, we've got to do all of these things to there are three things you need to focus on because literally nothing else is important in your job. Like, for, I guess there's nothing important in your job for the flow. There are things that you want to do. There are initiatives that could potentially help. But part of it is like, how can I put aside my thoughts and focus and align on what the organization needs to do to be able to appropriately move forward. So th that has been an interesting kind of shift that I have seen uh, with Max through a, a handful of organizations in the last kind of year or a year and a half. And it, it's one of those that you kind, you kind of think about it, Vlad, and you kind of chew on the thought for a couple of minutes and you're like, well, I, I, I mean, psychologically, you don't know what people are going to think when you're like, basically nothing you're doing for your job is important. You need to focus on these three things. But I have been generally shocked that so many people are positively looking at it. And so it's been a very interesting shift. And that is 
very much aligned with kind of my thoughts of going into the year. And I discussed this, uh, I discussed this uh, in December, kind of my plans for the year. Um, I generally entitled it something like less Dave, more Dave, right? So I want to focus basically on the things that matter. And if it doesn't matter, I want to either outsource it or I don't want to do it. And I think I've been able to generally be more productive because I'm only focusing on things that matter. If it doesn't matter in the flow of my business, in the flow of my life, of the things that I want to accomplish, then it just, it lives at the bottom of a list and it just never gets done. And at some point I've learned there are just things that never get done on on like my note card lists. And the world doesn't end. And if it actually matters, someone will come ask for it again. Let me ask you a clarification or I guess curiosity question on that Mm -hmm. like last segment. So based on the like original, I would say like problem described by the facility, which is we need to hire more people. My thought is immediately, you know, because you you can, I would say like assess multiple areas, right? So you can Mm -hmm. assess... For example, the process, so you could improve the process of how we like manufacture widgets or again, like we can get into like the automation aspects, you know, add like a robot, whatever. So make the process better. Mm -hmm. You can make the people better as you've described, like make the people a bit more focused, more aware of the situation. Or you could also, I guess, like I'm just seeing the three options, like in, in this conversation, there's probably more, but the third option would be to rework the hiring process where we bring in like better talent, right? Like our talent pipeline is kind of better. So how do you, maybe, how do you figure out from that initial conversation, which is like, let's just hire more people and throw more people at the problem Mm -hmm. to where the problem really is and kind of spend your efforts there? So that's a good question. Uh, I'm going to kind of answer that in reverse. I would say kind of the number three, we should rework our hiring process and hire better, more qualified people is generally a non-starter, right? So especially now in today's job market, it is basically impossible to go hire better, more qualified people, especially for like an operator level job. Like if you want to go hire like a new VP of something or a new director of operations or, or a plant manager, like you could potentially go poach someone like that. But you're probably not poaching someone who's running a filler from, you know, the, yeah, you're probably not going to go poach someone who's running a filler at 15 bucks an hour or, or something along those lines. So I would say generally, number three is generally not going to be an option. Okay. For, for me, our, our general conversation becomes, why do we perceive that we have these problems in the flow? And it kind of goes back to this thought process of all problems are not created equal. So typically when we would do that, we would do something like a value stream map. And and a value stream map is a generally well-known tool. Uh, Basically you go and you kind of outline all of the equipment that you have at a facility, and then you build a process flow or a series of process flows through the facility for all of the products that you can go ahead and make. So, at that point, you take a look at what the process flow looks like and you, you find the constraint, right? So in many facilities that have a filler, be it peanut butter or beer or juice, like if you have a filler, your design constraint is the filler, right? Uh, if you're designed for 50, uh, you know, 50 jars an hour or 20,000 jars an hour, your design constraint should be the filler. 
and everything upstream and downstream of that should be designed in order to allow you to never stop the filler. Because as soon as you stop or slow down the filler, that's productivity you're never going to be able to get back. So you put things like buffers. So like uh, bi-directional tables or Carlton's, you kind of put things in on either side, depending upon what it looks like in order to build a buffer so that you in theory never have to stop the filler. So when you look at the flow of an operations and you look at operators and other people that say they're overworked, you ask what stops the flow, right? So if you have an issue with a depalletizer, right? So if you have an issue with a depalletizer and there's no way to manually put the empty uh, containers on the line, then, then that is going to be an issue. But if you have a issue with your palletizer, but you also have a way to manually pull off those cases and cartons and put them on the palletizer, then that doesn't stop the flow. So all problems are not created equal. And generally speaking, as long as you are staffed to an appropriate level, you can go through some processes to understand what's actually going wrong. And many times it's the same kind of lingering problems that you can just go ahead and fix, be it with fixtures, be it with jigs, be it with procedures, be it with preventative maintenance. And then suddenly a lot of those frustrations go away. So in today's day and age, it becomes very difficult to just hire infinitely more people. Um, I'm actually gonna gonna shout out episode three again because we talk about productivity, which is basically how you do more with less. Um, and I, basically, every time I have this conversation with Max, I'm kind of like always just like the slightest bit flippant because he always says like productivity is how you do more with the same. And I'm like, Max, this is the most unrealistic thing you're ever saying. Like, no customer is going to believe that, you know, Vlad's going to come in and offer you $50 million of robots, but you're going to be like, we can do everything you need to do with exactly what you have. So it, it's a good episode. You guys should uh, should certainly go ahead and uh, and check that out. Uh, so I'll kind of to, to finish up those points, Vlad, it becomes a lot of mindset shifts, right? Mm-hmm. So it becomes the conversation of, how do we change our thought process of I need 10 more operators to the we need to improve the flow of the process in order to be able to do to be able to work with what we have. So I'm sure everyone's been at a facility that, you know, first shift is generally fully staffed. Second and third shift become less and less staffed. We can just always have issues. But there's like always that one crew that is like 20 percent of what full staff is but they always blow everyone out of the water, right? Like if you're running a hundred, a a quantity of a hundred in a normal shift, these guys are always the ones who are like three of them by themselves running like 150. And you're like, how do they do that? It's because, I mean, it's for a variety of reasons, but once you, it's it's magic. Yeah. It's magic. But that just proves like, if you know, you can do it, you know it should be possible. You just have to remove everything in the way of allowing that possibility. Dave, let me ask you this. Again, as a follow-up to that. So I'm curious, you know, and because we talk a lot about automation and like just data uh, and some of the projects that I was involved in uh, were very reliant on data. And you mentioned that, you know, you typically assess your production line and figure out, you know, Again, it, obviously the filler is where your process yep. kind of meets your packaging uh, mm-hmm. line. But 
when you and again in your experience draw from like different mm -hmm. manufacturing facilities how good are they at providing that information right and, and on one side I'll, I'll tell you maybe like what i've seen is you mm -hmm. come in and they have almost like no idea of what their like bottleneck is and they would kind of generally point at machines again if you speak to an operator mm -hmm. who's been there you know for five years he generally has a good idea of what that like main problem is but is is that what you're seeing also or are you seeing really good like reports that again can pull data and like ultimately show you like what's the you know yeah. the scale from that like we have no idea to like yeah. we are giving you like here's the like ai machine learning algorithm that have pinpointed the exact like location of the problem yeah so i would say of all of the facilities that i've walked in in the last five or six years that they called me because they were looking to do some sort of project and it wasn't like a lead from someone that i know who does work in, in the data in the general data space um they all have terrible data right like they have terrible data if data exists so many times yeah. you know they'll have an idea right maybe maybe they know what percent there are up right and they, they know they're at 46 percent up and 46 percent up for them is good, right? Like they can continue to run and make money at 46% up. So I would say generally speaking, most of like the really good data and the analytics and the advanced analytics, those are not the companies that are calling me. Although it could be because I spent a number of years doing that work, which is why companies are not companies who need that call me or companies who need to leverage something like that call me. So I would say most of the time people don't have good data. Um, and then, you know, there are kind of a couple paths that you can go down to collect that. Like you can do the yeah. manual stopwatch thing. You can have someone, be it an intern or something like that, go sit there with a stopwatch, kind of collecting data, understanding uptime and downtime. I know a bunch of facilities that have done that, or we've done some tests along, I, me in the past have done some tests kind of along that line to get a general idea of where they are. But typically kind of to your point, Vlad, operators generally know what the problem becomes, right? So operators know what the problem becomes. They know what is the bottleneck or what is the constraint. I would also say that, you know, some people are, are very good at just walking the floor and understanding what the constraint is. So a lot of times you'll have a ton of work in progress at a facility. When you have a ton of work in progress at a facility, then it becomes a, it, it becomes more difficult to understand where the constraint is because all of the work in progress and all the stuff in the back and behind that really, it, it makes it more difficult to understand what the constraint is because there's just so much in there. So typically in a process, one of the first things we would do is kind of get all of the work in progress out in order to understand what, what the constraint is. And again, some of them are design constraints. Uh, some of them are unintentionally designed constraints, but you many times while we might not have OEE that can tell us what the problem is. You can go walk around and understand what the problem is. You can go talk to operators right. and understand what the problem is. And I basically adopted the philosophy of if our operators and maintenance staff and, and folks, like if they think that this is the problem, like let's go spend some time and figure out if this is the problem, see if we can't optimize that section. And if we're right, then we're correct. If we're wrong, then we've optimized a section, but we've also reduced that as a possibility of being the constraint. Yeah, that makes sense. If we have a question on uh, on the YouTube channel from Paul, and he's asking, Dave, do you believe machine learning and AI 
are going to help with those bottlenecks in the near future. And I want to, I guess, tack onto that because you've kind of answered that piece, at least in yeah. my opinion. But do you see, like, do you see new technologies coming out that help with that piece, right? Like, and I, I don't want to say like data, but I want to say like more identifying what the real problem or root cause is. Wow. Okay. So those are two questions. I'm going to answer Paul's question first. Um, I guess it, we would have to define, right? So I'm going to give you like the super consultant answer, Paul, and I apologize, but, but we would have to describe like near term. If we want to say like the next two years, I think the answer is no. If we want to say closer to five years, I think the answer is probably yes. I think that machine learning and artificial intelligence provide a big opportunity to find improvements and gains in the manufacturing process. I also think that most of the people kind of generally, like there are some industries like automotive and pharmaceutical that to what I understand do a very good job because they are very highly optimized and they have a bunch of good clean data. Most of the other industries that I see don't have good clean data. And before we could give it to a data scientist, most facilities, many companies would need six to 12 months of just cleaning the data so that we have clean data. And then most data scientists don't understand the process. And because they don't understand the process, they can't create that into an algorithm. And then they can't go and take that to optimize the process. So I think mid-term maybe in the five-ish year range, we're going to see more adoption of that. I have seen some, especially in pharmaceuticals, uh, I have seen some very interesting opportunities in the machine learning, in the AI space, but that's only because of how expensive everything they do is and how much they have invested in that. Um, we'll, we'll drop some links. Uh, I did a series with Jim Gavigan, who was on one of our early shows like 15 or 16 months ago that we talked about multivariant analysis, MVA, uh, on this Simca platform. It is very in-depth. I was certainly kind of the idiot, and Jim kind of walked me through how this works. But the concept is you plot all of your data points, and especially in pharmaceuticals, you run this at 100% of the time. And if it runs within the tube of known good at every single step, they don't even have to go test the pills. They know that they can just continue to ship the pills because they have been able to kind of capture all of the data. Now, when I kind of take that and I look at things like my pen or, or I look at things like my water bottle, like Yeti isn't going to go spend hundreds of millions of dollars to capture all of the data in order to be able to go run it through machine learning or artificial intelligence because they're happy making, I don't know, 35 or 40 bucks or whatever the coffee cup costs, you know, through the process. Um, but I, I think that there is some interesting opportunities on there. And then Vlad, you, you were asking if I think that machines are going to be able to give us root cause analysis. Well, I'd say like better data tools, right? Like tied back to like AI and machine learning. Do you think, and I think you've pretty much like answered that question, right? Like it's going to take a little bit of time. I think it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting that it depends on the industry, right? Like, and I've mm -hmm. noticed this as well, because again, I'm pre predominantly, I would say in food and beverage, right? Like that's mm -hmm. my background. I've been in medical device manufacturing earlier in my career, but there's certainly like different, I would say like margins on the business side from those products. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot more capital is reinvested or is able to be reinvested on the pharmaceutical side. And hence the reason why we see a lot of the advancements coming from there. 
Um, I think it's it, it goes the same for like very I would say like high end chemicals versus more, uh, you know, just like common goods. So mm -hmm. if you have plants that are processing, um, again, like oil refineries, I think it's very different environments than uh, what you would see in pharmaceuticals because it's it's just getting squeezed from like a business standpoint. Um, on, Absolutely. Just to close off, I guess, like on Paul's question, he said that uh, he'll appreciate the link. So, Paul, I'm going to share uh, Dave's LinkedIn page um, on YouTube so that you could reach out to him. I think that's yeah. probably the easiest way uh, to get in touch with Dave and get that link. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then, Paul, I'm going to go ahead and ask Vlad uh, kind of the next series of questions. And I will go ahead and uh, drop those comments in the in the YouTube as well. I'll link, go ahead and link you to uh, to Jim's channel and the conversations that uh, the conversations that we had. But uh, but Vlad, so like this has been super exciting. Um, everyone will have to like drop comments if you guys like this part of the conversation. If we should update you more frequently, or you guys want us to let you two finish around before we realize we haven't talked about uh, how everything is going. But I have some like follow up questions, right? Or so, some questions about the theme. So we had three amazing series of conversations, uh, January, February, and March of this year. And yeah, and I want to talk about those a little bit and kind of get your takeaways. So if everyone remembers all the way back to January, which feels like four and a half years ago. So we had Benson on from Opto 22 and he kind of kicked off the evolution of control systems. And then we had four amazing conversations about the evolution of control systems. And Alan Ray was on and he was talking about kind of what he was doing with Era Energy. And Alan has now since kind of moved on. And his goal is to kind of take that ecosystem uh, further kind of further into the future, but like, what are your thoughts and takeaways? What did you learn uh, from evolution of control systems, Vlad? Um, well, I mean, I certainly think that there's a lot of changes coming, right? And again, I'm going to sound like a consultant myself, but uh, ah. there's a lot of, I would say, much more open platforms coming on the market. And, and when I say like coming on the market, they've been kind of getting into the market for the last five years almost. But there's, I, I feel a clear dissatisfaction of how things have been done until now. And I think that the pandemic has certainly accelerated, um, I would say maybe not necessarily the shift, but at the very least the end users looking elsewhere when it comes to the more traditional controls, right? And again, I would say that, and, and I made a post about this on LinkedIn the other day, is I'm all for standardizing, but there's always a point where you should ask yourself have we standardized on the right platform and i think due to the constraints in uh, supply chain primarily in the last like year or so like i said end users have started looking elsewhere exploring with different platforms but again there's there's a lot of different challenges you know i'm not 100 sold on the idea of let's take an existing plant and just migrated from one vendor that we have right now to a completely new platform, you know, as of today. That being said, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think there's a lot more, um, as again, like I think we talked about this with every guest, but I think getting people involved outside of our industry and what I usually refer to as software engineers and computer scientists from outside of manufacturing and being able to just 
shorten the learning curve, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a massive win for manufacturing, right? Because I think a lot of people graduate with, uh, again, the knowledge required to, let's say, like build applications, uh, whether it is like mobile, web app, um, and it's just too hard for them to be able to pivot into manufacturing. But with some of these newer platforms, uh, I think it's going to be much, much easier. So I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm staying optimistic, but I'm curious to see how it's going to progress. Absolutely. You? No, I, so I, I am optimistic. So I, I think Benson made, made a couple of really good points uh, when he talked. And so Benson kind of talked about some of his lessons learned and lessons learned. He talked about how kind of Ethernet IP and I think OPC or OPC UA, they were kind of part of those initials, uh, initial uh, conversations. But he also talked about a couple of things that they were just like way too far ahead to, uh, ahead of the curve. Like they were 20 years ahead of the curve and the curve wasn't ready. And they tried to bring some products to market and it didn't work. And I feel like it's it's always interesting to talk to the folks Benson, the folks at Opto Twenty Two, because they they are like what I consider like on the bleeding edge, right? They're they're technologists who like to build technology and push the future, and so I think a lot of what they're using are potentially opportunities that we'll see more adoption of in you know five years or or ten years from now. I think they're they're just that far ahead of the curve, and but I, I think that it's very interesting. As we look over the course and period of time, kind of from the the modicons and the PLC ones and threes and fives, and how many PLC fives do we still see um, in facilities today? Um, Ironically, as a side note, I've heard that processors for PLC fives are currently going for 50 grand on eBay. So if anyone has a PLC five processor that uh, that still works, now may be the time to divest yourself of that. So, but like for 50 grand, you can go buy a, a control logics and rewire the IO and do all the programming and probably still come out ahead. And then you have a relatively stable platform to uh, to be able to, to use. And so I think that, that it's interesting kind of the, the technology. I, I love the conversation we had with Benson. I love the conversation that we had with Alan kind of talking about how he's leveraging all these different, you know, technologies and what the future can look like and kind of the price point per IO. Um, and so we had Tim Wilborn on as well. And Tim made some really good points. And I'm probably going to bring it up because Tim and I chatted uh, earlier this week, but, but uh, he made some really good points. Like, if there's Rockwell or if there's Siemens that currently lives in the facility, it's a very high difficulty, a very high cost to change because I'm not just, you know, swapping one PLC over, right? I'm swapping one PLC and committing the plant to probably swapping the rest of the PLCs. And then I'm committing to all of the spare parts. And then I'm committing to all the training and the software costs and all of those things. So it's, uh, it, when you look at like, hey, can I take a control logics and swap that out for a, a you know, an Opto 22 Groove Rio? Um, I think I got the, the names of those correct. Like, like at first you kind of look at it and you're like, yeah, this one has universal IOs. It, it has a lot of things, but it, become, it becomes a much harder financial conversation. So I am specifically interested to see with kind of all of the reshoring we're doing, if companies like Opto, if companies like Phoenix Contact and their PLC Next, like, are they going to be in the conversation or is it going to be Rockwell and Siemens 
you know, continuing to be there saying, hey, I'm going to buy this plant by giving you an 80% off list discount. So I think it'll be very interesting to see how that goes. And kind of to that point, I think that there are some very exciting things that, you know, pieces of technology that we're seeing. Uh, so like Opto22, they've got the universal I.O., Vlad, I love the concept of universal IO. I always like scratch my head and I'm like, why doesn't everyone have universal IO? Like, so Vlad has the, the control logics behind him, right? And he's got like a bazillion dollars in cards. And I can't tell you how many times I went and I quoted a, a retrofit, right? Or I quoted a machine build and it's like, okay, we need X number of cards, but I also want to give myself an extra 20% of blank IO because at some point I'm going to need to add IO to this job. And if I don't, if I fill up 100% of the IO in one card, then that means without a doubt, we're going to get 80% of the way through the job. They're going to be like, I want to add one more thing. And that one thing is three grand of card plus five grand of additional rail, right? Like that's how it goes 100% of the time. So I love the concept of uh, universal IO. I think that we need to have more adoption of that. Honestly, we're probably going to save ourselves a lot of time and frustration when we look at supply chain issues into the future if we do something like, like universal I.O. And then I love the concept of kind of like the, the web app, right? So like the web HMI or the easy web app. I, I know Opto has one. I think Phoenix Contact also has one. Zach, Zach was talking about. I, like conceptually, I love the concept and it doesn't have to be beautiful, but do you know how powerful it is to be able to pull out your phone and see how your machine is running? I have a client, um, maybe at I mean, some to point be fair, future, panel views have also had that feature for a long time, but that's... yes. Yes, uh, no, no. So they, they absolutely have had that feature, like, but it's like an ASP.NET, right? Isn't it the same thing as the control logics and it's no longer supported because it was an intern's project, right? I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm not sure what like the current state is. I know that like Rockwell's yeah. working on a new line of HMIs, but I, I want to like, I guess I addressed like your last point. I, I really yeah. like the idea of configurable IO. I think like yep. that has like a very addressable market. I would play, you know, like maybe devil's advocate where for me as, let's say, an engineering resource, mm -hmm. setting up a new project, that would be fantastic, right? But mm -hmm. I could also see a scenario where, again, depending on how that's set up and how easy it is to just plop in like a new card with configurable I.O., I would see someone making the mistake of, let's say, setting that to like zero to five volts and then running current yeah. through it, right? Like you have to, I think... Be very but careful th that, that shouldn't fry it, should it? If you set it to zero to five volts, it shouldn't fry at one twenty or two forty. I mean, it depends on the protection, right? Like everything does, yeah. has like uh, everything has a cost, and obviously, I don't think that cost is significant. I think if it's built right, then it should definitely be fine. But I, I guess like we, you could exaggerate the example of it could be configured to like zero five volts, and you send it like mm -hmm. one ten AC. But yeah. the, the point remains, I think. Uh, I guess the point, rather than like frying it, the point is someone needs to configure it or maybe it's like a smart enough like where you configure the back slot chassis where like once you plug in a new replacement then it like auto reconfigures and pulls that mm -hmm. from the plc and then it like minimizes the workflow for again your maintenance guy who may not have in most cases at least in my experience not even that he's not capable he just doesn't have access to the right tools he doesn't normally go online with like the plc and can reconfigure it so again i think there's maybe like some caution to be had when it comes to 
completely like standardizing IO cards, although I believe that's probably how it's going to be in the future because the prices are constantly going down. And as we probably all know, the markup on them is pretty large, right? So if you're spending just a few pennies extra on the hardware required to make it reconfigurable, I don't think it's going to significantly eat in uh, in your in your cost to, to build. Absolutely. So I, I think that kind of some of my biggest takeaways are there are a bunch of new, it's going to be difficult for new technology, even if the new technology is 10 or 15 years old to go displace in mass yes. some of the older legacy control systems at many of these facilities. Uh, but I also think that it, the, the new technology gives people opportunities for data collection, for easier visualization. Yep. And I don't think you can preclude running Rockwell PLCs or Siemens PLCs and maybe like an Opto 22 or a PLC Next as a data condenser, data collector uh, style offering, and then just go ahead and drop that up into, into the web, especially as we see newer uh, younger people who are more interested in kind of exploring technology. So I, I, I think that you made a good point uh, there, Vlad. And honestly, I'm excited to see what the next, you know, 20 years are going to bring, because I think that the last 20 years, we've gone from basically PLC5s through the slicks to the compact and control logics. And I mean, I would imagine we're going to basically be rocket ship, uh, to whatever we're going to be in 2042, or even probably 2032 is going to be very different. But I can guarantee you one thing, Vlad, 2032, if we're still doing this show, I guarantee you there'll still be PLC5s living in the wild. Well, hopefully by that time, the price is going to be 500,000, not 50, but... I don't know. Are, are, are you are you hoarding PLC5 processors uh, for the next possible. 10 years? It is possible. possible. I, I don't want to reveal uh, the yes or no because you know that <laughs> leaves me open to potential threats. But what did you think of <laughs> speaking of threats? What did you yeah. think of uh, the cybersecurity theme the second month uh, of February of this year? So I thought it was interesting, Vlad, because cybersecurity was like the first of two episodes that you and I are like not the experts in. I mean, mm -hmm. generally speaking, we're not the experts when we bring four people on who are experts and things to talk about it. But man, I think that the cybersecurity was very interesting. So I always love talking to like so the cybersecurity folks because they like most of them like harken back to the like, I'm going to go hack on my like uh, DOS, I'm going to go get on my DOS computer and I'm going to go like hack on that uh, the green screen, right? And I'm going to go get somewhere. And so that, that's always interesting. I find that most of the cybersecurity folks that I have met in the OT space are very much the, I'm going to like go figure it out, right? Like the, the resources don't particularly exist. We had some people on who have literally written the written some of the good resources, but generally speaking, resources don't exist uh, a bunch of years ago. There are certainly more now and they're all kind of like go and figure it out. I, I felt like it was, it was really good that everyone, I felt like many people said certificates are good but try to get your company to pay for them because they get very expensive very quickly. And if you're looking to break into an opportunity by getting certificates, you're going to spend a lot of money without potentially getting an opportunity. And there is a bunch of opportunity to kind of network within it. And then I think three or four guests kind of just, what did they say? 
they, they, they're all of their career advice was basically like, just say yes and figure it out. Right. Like the, the first three of them, it was all just say yes and figure it out. Like the, that, that's the only way we ever do any of this in there. So I, I thought that that it was a really good theme. I felt, I feel like we've just like started to scratch the surface of the theme and we will, we will absolutely have to continue to talk about cybersecurity into the future. It was also very timely with all of the world issues that are currently going on and all of the worries, especially with water, wastewater and, uh, and energy facilities uh, that, that may or may not be more prone to hacks. I mean, to be very fair, they've always been very prone to hacks. Uh, people, if you're listening to this, please don't have admin password as your uh, as your login and password for, well, I mean, anything, but especially your PLCs and HMI displays. It physically pains Vlad. If you're listening to this on the podcast, you, you can't see his face. Uh, but no, Vlad, so so what, what did you think? What was your takeaway? But maybe first, how far into Pascal's new book have you gotten? Page one, maybe. Oh, boom. <laughs> I've opened it a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, like, look, so my initial impression, I guess my thought of cybersecurity was exactly what you've described. I thought it was yeah. a lot more like about hacking. Obviously, you know, I've seen, I think, and I've yeah. mentioned in a couple of episodes, I've seen, uh, and, and maybe I can finalize that story. So in my, at my first employer's, you know, very large company, they would send out these emails, like phishing emails, like, oh, like, uh, yeah. send like a file or, I, to be honest with you, I forget what the contents were. And the irony of those emails was that, you know, I was essentially like the youngest and I would say like one of the, like three, like electrical resources that like program PLCs and specialize more mm-hmm. like on the, like IT-ish slash OT side. And mm-hmm. I was like, all of the, all the three of us on the, programming side were the ones who'd get caught by these emails so <laughs> like the biggest I like and we had like you know that conversation with like engineering manager because yeah. I, I don't know if the email like and i can't remember again like if the emails were just so good or like you know i've almost been complacent at the time but yeah i, I think it's it's interesting to see that there's very i would say subtle tricks that can be done that are i would say again maybe summarize it in a way like it's a lot less like science and it's a lot more art. You know what I mean? And I didn't expect it to be that way. So I thought it was Mm -hmm. like very like methodical, like how can you uh, like reach into the facility, but it's a lot more like how can we creatively like build something that would, you know, Mm -hmm. make the people inside kind of like either click a link or, you know, go visit like some email download, like a PDF file that actually contains like some, virus that opens like a port what, whatever you know like i'm just <laughs> yeah hypothesizing of what of what could happen um i but, uh yep i was gonna say to, to that point flat i believe Miriam on our first episode said that she the cyber uh, cyber security expert got caught in uh, one of those emails in december because she wasn't paying attention and it was talking about something like uh remote new remote work policy or something like that so i don't think anyone other than my mother who will never clicks on anything, especially her email. Um, I think it's possible that everyone uh, can go ahead and get caught in that. And then kind of to the science versus art, I feel like people who understand psychology are probably better going to be better prepared to both attack and or defense a red team or blue team uh, on the cybersecurity side, because so much of it is networking and social networking, and how can we go craft the best email to, to go ahead and get 
you know, people to go click on the link. It's, it's no longer the days of someone is calling on your phone saying that they're windows support, right? So windows support is generally, well, they're still catching people because they still call me, but windows support is not, you know, the breaking edge of cybersecurity. Most of the time it's someone sends an email, someone clicks a link, and then, then they're kind of in and running wild, especially if you don't do a good job segregating your IT and OT networks. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would also add, you know, like on kind of another point that I've always like really liked from a cybersecurity standpoint, I think that, you know, having your admin password is not the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do is you kind of tempt someone to hack your device. I don't know if you've ever seen this on like switches, you know, people would leave like a label like unhackable or like they would, they would name it in like a weird way. And yeah. I feel like that, if anything, is like I've been like I love a challenge, right? Like in in manufacturing, automation, <laughs> like in life, whatever. But if there's like a switch that's labeled like "Don't crack the password" or like "Password yeah. Password Protected," whatever, that's like almost the motivation you need. And you know, it's again like in the OT space, I would say if you go through like the manuals, it's not that difficult to reset even. Like if you have access to the physical hardware and get mm-hmm. into somebody's uh, like device, but in, in any case, like I, I think it's, I think it's one of those topics where we're going to get, I think, in a lot of trouble before people fully realize the importance, right? And I think we've slightly started to do that with the pandemic, but I, I really don't think that we've seen. Um, like all the repercussions that could happen, right? Like I think we haven't experienced where, you know, there's like a complete like internet blackout in like a major city and like what it, like what it's going to, and I think maybe Facebook had like an outage and it was, don't quote me on the number, it was like 4 billion or like 6 billion lost (laughs) in like, you know, like eight hours. But imagine like if a social media network shut down for that long, it's costing us that much. Imagine what it would cost if just like internet is shut down for uh, like in New York for like a week, right? And so mm-hmm. my perception is that, uh, I guess like to close that off, I, I think we're going to see a lot larger problems before we tighten up the metaphorical, I guess, like ropes or I don't know yeah. what, what, what the expression I'm trying to make, but, but you get the idea. I think it's going to take a bit more um, problems. So. Absolutely. No, I think that uh, all, all of those are good points. And at least now everyone knows that Vlad's home internet is FBI van number three. And uh, that, that is what he's coming to us as because that is just his sense of humor. Please do not write password protected on one of your ports for a managed or semi-managed switch. You in your facility. I mean, you, you're you just can. asking for trouble. I'm going to invest a lot of time <laughs> and effort trying to get into that switch like it's it's just telling me i can't get into it it's i don't know perfect and now so i'm gonna tell vlad he can't hit ten thousand downloads on our next episode and we'll see if we don't hit ten thousand downloads and everyone sees episode 55 a million times um in the future but no so uh, that brings us to the kind of the, the most recent uh maybe most moving 
uh, theme that we've had of robotics. And we had some very interesting robotics conversations, right? We, we did simulation. We did some of the world's smallest robots. We did huge robots. We did cobots. We, we did dog robots. Like, what are, you, what are your thoughts on robots, Vlad? Are you going to become a robotics expert and throw out all the PLCs? Well, uh, Dave, if I had the time, I would become a robotics <laughs> expert, a cybersecurity expert. Like, I mean, I think all those industries are very interesting, right? Like, just like general perspective, and I think to bring this back really quick to like practicality, I think in any of those fields, like you can build a very solid career, right? And I think that mm -hmm. in many ways, a lot of people are kind of, and I'm talking more about myself, are kind of maybe looking for the best opportunity. But I think if you just focus on, let's say like cybersecurity or robotics, you can become a really, really, really good expert that makes a very comfortable, I would say, living at the at the very least. But at the top level, like I think the opportunities are like almost unlimited. So what I think about robotics, and I mean, I would love to learn to program robots. And as I've mentioned, you know, in our episodes, like I've done mm -hmm. projects where I would interface with robots. I think that the programming languages that I've been exposed to, and it's mm -hmm. primarily Fanuc, right? So it's Corel. Mm -hmm. um, and again, maybe like, again, taking a step back to what I'm trying to solve on the learning process is mm -hmm. it's not as easy to learn robotics. Number one, you usually want to have the hardware. Number two, you usually, you want to have the software or a simulation platform. And I think we've talked through a couple of ways to simulate it. Mm -hmm. I haven't played with them yet. Right. So take that with maybe the that caveat, but I don't know mm -hmm. how good they are to the real world and how kind, like what kind of a scenario can you learn from that would be very reapplicable, right? So is it, yep. is it fairly close? Is it, is it going to simulate? I think with Siemens, we talked about, it can simulate mm -hmm. a lot of the conveyors, the buttons, the sensors, but is that, you know, maybe that's a very expensive piece of uh, simulation software versus again, I haven't downloaded the ABB software that was recommended by mm -hmm. David as well as um, Shane. Shane. Um, yep. But I I still remain skeptical on what it takes to at least learn robotics at a very basic level. I haven't necessarily found a good resource. And uh, to be honest with you, I will keep pushing with some of these manufacturers to be able to provide better resources like on the Solus PLC side. But mm -hmm. on the personal level, I would really like to learn. And again, I don't think that my goal would be to become the next robotics programmer for, you know, Ford or Tesla, where it's like extremely mm -hmm. advanced robotics with like 20 arms. And I probably will not pursue a PhD in robotics, but I would at least. I'm like sorry, probably we, we need, we need to pause here. You're pro so there's a possibility you're going to go. I mean, I never show. say never to anything. You they, That's ah. like just a general rule. You never know where like life could take you and like, on different paths. So I'm not going to say that I'm like, I love this. Most likely I'm not going to pursue a PC. So I, I love this Vlad because everyone can now see how your like ADHD riddled brain works, right? We go, you're like, I want to be a cybersecurity expert one month. And you're like, I'm probably not going to get a robotics PhD the next month. Like it has yep. entered your brain and you have considered this, but, but no, pl please continue. Uh, finish your thoughts <laughs> on robotics, which you may or may not be getting a PhD in. We'll just call you Dr. Vlad from now on. Well, uh, I mean, yeah, maybe one day, 
But uh, I mean, look, I think robotics, I think there's a ton of opportunity in terms of optimizing paths. I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, like we've, we've had some very good conversations with experts that are doing, I would say, very niche applications. Mm-hmm. But I think the 80% of factories, and I'm just throwing that like as the 80-20 rule, obviously, like, yeah. don't quote me, like there, there's no uh, scientific evidence to my percentage. <laughs> But I'm assuming that most of the factories, based on what I've seen, are trying to optimize palletization, right? Mm-hmm. Packaging. Um, they're trying to optimize their AGVs, right? So you have a robot that brings like raw materials from the warehouse into like each one of your lines. And I think there's a lot of opportunity, I guess like time to be gained on just optimizing those transitions. Right, and I think like that's what we're going to get with uh, these like more advanced tools. I'm not sold on cobots. I think like David Nichols was the very positive person on cobots. As I've said on the episodes, like I've seen them in trade shows. They seem like an interesting idea. Um, I would like to have one. If there's anyone who wants to reach out and kind of sponsor a cobot, you know, that's <laughs> definitely. If I was to put it right next to me, so like if I had like a big arm. <laughs> that would kind of swing a beer out of like the fridge and like kind of bring it my way. I think I would get a cobot versus a you know fanic that's stacked up to like my ceiling and can punch through the wall with uh, relative ease. But in an all practical sense, I'm I'm more on like Shane's side and what he expressed as uh, as concerns for robotics, as concerns like I would say like just letting anyone kind of set it up and let it run i'm more than happy to experiment with stuff but i don't know how feasible that's going to be in the real environment okay so uh, let let me get it out of the way i would also love a robot but beth my wife would murder me if i if i tried to find any room for literally any robot uh outside of like the tiny mechademic robots that alien was talking about and like could hold in his hand on on episode uh, two of the previous theme so uh, if you guys have cobots that are just lying around and collecting dust, please go ahead and send them to Vlad. I would love to see him accidentally smack him in the head at least once an episode. We'll go hack into his switch that says password protected, and then we'll go accidentally smack him in the head uh, once an episode, maybe with some sort of foam hand. That and that just kind of ties all of our uh, all of our themes together. It's supposed to be safe. It's supposed to be safe. Yes. So. Um, I, like I, I love robots, right? I think that there's so much fun. Uh, everything from the the Tesla facility to kind of helping to integrate gantry style robots to you know big Kuka Titans that that I started playing around with early in my career. I think they're they're a lot of fun. I think that there is a lot of opportunity. I, unlike Vlad, have no intention of going to get a PhD or, or focusing on robotics. I, I I like to joke that kind of the thing that that age has brought to me is the realization that I am good at a couple of things and everything else that I'm not good at. I once again have this nice phone, Vlad, and this this phone has a bunch of phone numbers in it. And I can go call the, the experts to uh, to get experts to come do the job because I'm never going to be as good as Shane or as good as David and their kind of crews and, and how they integrate robots and cobots and kind of all of those things. So that is not my goal, but I think there are a lot of really interesting applications. I love the simulation that we talked about with Max on, on the first episode. Like I am, I have loved the concept of simulation and digital twin for I don't know, maybe nearly 10 years, basically since like the concept of industry 4.0 came around. I think that digital twin has a huge opportunity 
I, I personally have just struggled to find opportunities for it. I know a lot of people that do a bunch of work in it, you know, Max, I know some, some folks that do the Rockwell Arena and some the Siemens NX, and I kind of know a bunch of these. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity, but I think a lot of it is in auto. A lot of it that I've seen is, is in automotive. Um, I, mean, I think so, it depends on the size of the customer. If I may, if I may comment yeah. on that, again, some of my like first employers that had very, mm-hmm. I would say, sizable facilities, they yep. had digital twins and they even had entire production lines in you know, like for testing their projects. But I think you're going to find out a lot more in, as you said, like automotive, I think more in pharmaceuticals, because I think the cost of, again, deploying a full line to just run Mm -hmm. R&D projects, if, again, like, and that's a big if, right? Like, I'm going to say, like, if you can very reliably simulate the same process in the digital world. And again, that's why, like, I think we had a conversation with Max and it was very interesting because one yeah. of my main questions is like, how do you simulate? I understand machinery, right? Like your belts can move, your pulleys mm-hmm. can move, your uh, whatever conveyors can run, motors can actuate. But how do you simulate the product, right? Like you're going to have a natural variation as an example of product in your process. And I think like that's going to be extremely difficult to figure out, right? Like different packaging, yeah. different, uh, if you have different patterns for your camera vision systems, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you have, different yeah. fric- even like like imagine you have something that like leaks on your belt like over time and your belt is like slightly more like lubricated than some other like area it's it's mm-hmm. so difficult to kind of i think pinpoint that different temperatures different again yeah. like different lighting in your facility right like how do you yeah. really simulate all of those but anyways that's so i think the perfect example of that is, is shane last week right so shane said something to the effect of when he sent over a quote he would go show a robotic arm without an end effect or anything like that, like going and picking up a box or picking up the thing it was supposed to pick up and move. His counterpart, his his co-founder, would spend like two weeks modeling and picking out the end effector and making everything perfect, and then it would go pick it up and and then it would move, right? So I I think it's kind of a a different strokes. I think that there are multiple different levels of digital twins. So I think that that's exciting. And honestly, I'm so grateful we got to have so many like interesting conversations, right? So from like the legacy style ABB robots to like small robots at Macademic to the robot dogs. Like I think that there are a lot of interesting applications and if nothing, I'm excited to see kind of how that pushes forward. I have a couple of applications that, that I'm working on that involve robots or should involve robots uh, towards the end of the year that, that are more towards that kind of crazy vision. Like I'm probably, ne- I'm never going to be the guy who says, we should go and install a bunch of six axis arms because those aren't the facilities and those aren't the sort of problems that typically come to me. If we've got to go install a bunch of six axis arms, I'm just calling someone and they can go figure it out. But I've got a couple of kind of interesting concepts. Uh, Maybe that, that by the time s- I get my PhD, you'll, you'll call me for those. I mean, Vlad, yes. By, by the time Vlad gets his PhD, I'll be selling 20 robotic arms with a whole bunch of motion and vision and VNR controllers, or I'm just going to call David Nichols and the team over at Loop, and they can go figure it out because God knows I'm not going to spend a thousand hours trying to uh, figure that out personally, when again, I can just go ahead and, and pick up my phone. But no, I, I love the conversation that we had about robotics. I would love to also kind of continue that conversation into the future maybe talk more about applications, uh, maybe kind of bring on some more case studies. It, it seems like that is a growing industry, especially as we find opportunities to bring in non-legacy clients. So like 
automotive, we can only build so many automotive plants that have a thousand robotic arms in it. So we're going to need to find other applications that are not legacy applications. And then on the cobot side, I actually agree with both David and Shane, right? I think that if you give a junior engineer a cobot and say, go find a reason to use it, they're going to go find a reason to use it. But I also don't personally think that I would trust a junior engineer with the safety of my noggin, right? Like even in a hard hat, like you don't know things that happen. And that's kind of my number one concern for cobots in general, is I understand the theoretical safety that has been built around them. But I am a bit worried, like, what does this actually mean? And so I know a lot of people are super happy to go work hand in hand with robot cobot cells. I have always been on the kind of tentative I don't think I trust me. And that's just kind of me in general, right? Like I don't particularly trust people. Like I don't particularly trust people in general. I was going to make the same comment when we were talking to Shane. It's just like seeing how even like some of the PLC code is written. I just like, (laughs) don't trust like roller coaster rides. You know, I'm like very skeptical. Like who wrote the code for this thing? Like I just don't know what's going to happen. So (laughs) So I actually know a bunch of people that write uh, code for for like Disney and Universal and they have super stringent testing requirements. They probably have the most stringent testing requirements than any facility in ever any industry I've ever been in. Um, But uh, but that is a story for another day. Uh, But no, so I think that the first three uh, themes of this year have been super interesting. I feel like we've all learned uh, some from everything. Uh, I will kind of throw it out. If you guys like kind of the recap that Vlad and I was doing, we've been talking about maybe doing one per theme, just TNI as kind of a bonus episode at the end of the theme. If you guys like that, feel free to like drop comments or go ahead and let us know. And if you don't, we might just do it anyway. So tell us what you think and uh, yeah, t- tell us what you think about that. And if you'd like more of the uh, more of the recaps. And now, Vlad, uh, we as a struggling 65-minute show that always struggle to make it to 75 minutes have made it to minute 76. So I'm going to go kind of start running downhill and ask you the questions that, uh, that that we normally ask our guests at the end. I guess let's start out with I'm, I'm going to ask you to predict the future, Vlad. What do you think the pr- future is going to look like in, in any and all of the uh, of the themes that we've been talking about? That's a very, very good question, Dave. So I think I've already touched on a little bit of the control system side. I think we're going to, and again, I've had end users reach out to me and kind of ask the question of how they should transition. You know, you've made some comments going from like Rockwell to Opto22, PLC Next, like some of these other platforms. I think we're going to see that shift more and more as I would say different leadership steps up to the plate and creates those plans. So I would say that it's not going to be an immediate transition, but I certainly think that they will invest the time and the money to at the very least try out some of these solutions, right? And I think, you know, you've maybe made an example of going from like a control logics to an Opto Opto 22 like Groove Rio. I, and I've had the technical evaluations, you know, of the two, I think there's a lot more, it's a multi- faceted problem right like there's going to be a lot of different hardware that cannot be migrated there's a lot of things that are maybe unavailable on the groove Mm -hmm. versus control logics and vice versa right and so i think assessments of different facilities will be made i think the same is going to happen on like machine builder side right so instead of going with the same control logics or Compact logics, can we go to a different platform? Because mm-hmm. quite frankly, we haven't been able to get it for the last nine months, right? I think 
everyone's been kind of frustrated on the uh, supply chain side. And if you can turn to a manufacturer like Opto 22, who makes all of their hardware in the US and can also very easily replace the components that they cannot source, it, uh, it almost becomes a no brainer and kind of like a forced solution. So I think on that side, you know, that's what we're going to see on the cybersecurity side. I'm a lot less optimistic, as I've mentioned to you. <laughs> I, I really think that it's going to take uh, a lot more disasters before that practice is kind of solidified. Uh, but at the same time, I really like what uh, what Clint is doing with his, uh, mm -hmm. like, I think like gamification is like a really cool concept. I made a post about it and it didn't get any attention, but I, I think <laughs> it's very, very like undervalued. I think people don't realize yeah. how much of their like daily lives have been gamified in many ways, right? Like mm -hmm. it could be as simple as like rewards programs and you go, uh, like nowadays you go shopping for, you know, like shoes. You, you want to buy like a pair of running shoes. That store has like a rewards program that's going to email you. Then it's going to say like, oh, well, you can get like 10 points for this, for that. Like, so there's a lot of mm -hmm. concepts in that. And I think it hasn't trickle down into tech as much as it probably can. And it allows us to get a lot of, uh, like, again, opportunities. I think even if you go on the manufacturing plant floor for an operator to get, like, better alerts, you know, there's more interesting, like, KPIs that are showing. There's a lot of uh, kind of ways, I think, to optimize that with uh, gamification. But anyways, that's a, a slight tangent, you know, but maybe on the cybersecurity side, I think there's a lot more opportunities but uh, also, I think, greater risks. And then, I guess, to close that off with robotics, I personally don't think that a lot is going to change in robotics. I see just optimization. Um, again, I think there's some very niche applications that will require specialty robots manufactured by, again, smaller companies. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe there will be a shift where they're going to become more op open. But to be honest with you, I wouldn't hold my breath on that. Uh, meaning that, you know, that, let's say, FANUC and KUKA ABB will kind of allow other systems to very easily integrate and be programmable in like C-sharp or Python, as an example. I, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So I guess to close that off, I think it's just optimizing paths and making sure that things are done quicker, faster, mm -hmm. cheaper on the robotic side. What about you? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Vlad, I think my thoughts are maybe like diametrically opposed to everything you said. So okay. I think that on the control systems, I think it's going to be difficult for new. I, I feel like if it hasn't happened in the last couple of years, it's going to be difficult to replace a lot of the legacy hardware. Um, as the control side, I think we're going to see a lot of hardware used for data collection. I think we're going to get more data collection. I hope we get more data analytics. I hope we get better visualization. I've been harping on it for like a decade, Vlad. There's no reason you shouldn't be able to be able, you shouldn't be able to see everything that's happening on your plant floor on your cell phone. Now, if you, yes, yes, but, but, but yes. So I certainly think that that will happen um, as to if it's a positive or if it's a negative, because you can wake up at two o'clock in the morning and hit the app and see that you're down. And now you're worried why are you down that that is a different debate, right? Or just like restart uh, so, the line, like restart, yeah, clear fault, yes. restart. 
<laughs> Absolutely. So I think we're going to see a lot of that. I think we're going to see a lot of the technology continue to trickle down into more legacy control systems. So I, I think we've got to see more. I think we need to see universal IO, right? I think that that needs to be a thing. It honestly surprises me that it's not a thing. If we can make it, why wouldn't we make one SKU and make a billion of them as opposed to make 50 SKUs and make 20,000 or 200,000 of each of those? Uh, just on the supply chain sense, it doesn't make sense to make so many different SKUs if you could just make one SKU. But I think like see, that problem, you know, just, just to touch maybe on that last point, yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize the importance of like standardizing to like a single SKU. I, I think... Oh, I, I'm sure they don't. I, I'm based solely upon the number of people that have 12 different types of PLCs in their facility. Yes. I am confident they don't understand yes. the value. I, I would hope that the sub current supply chain crunch that we have had will help people understand the value of standardizing. So like I have had some clients in the past who we standardized all of their PLCs on the L33 ERs and the one that we needed in motion, we did like L36 ERMs. Yes. Yep. And like th those are good. And then what you have the ability to do, Vlad, is you have the ability to put one of each in stock. And yes, it's 10 grand in stock. But if you have a problem, you can go flash the program that you have a copy of onto the PLC, slam it into the backplane. I mean, more gently than slam it. They're expensive and you've just broken one. But slam it into the backplane and then you're back up and running as opposed to, oh, no, I have 12 PLCs. Which one can I use? Which of the one or two that I have on stock can I possibly use? And then go make program changes and all of that. So And, and hopefully they're close enough, right? Like if I think it oh, becomes exactly, a completely exactly. different problem if you have different yes. brands of PLCs. And yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. Like, I think we can have an episode and hopefully with retrofits, we'll talk a bit more on this. But again, yeah. like there's just so many problems that I really think that current companies that are having supply chain issues are looking very closely in their warehouse slash like parts room and trying to optimize some of these SKUs. You but your point, yes. If it was one you, SKU of IO, I think that would yeah. solve like a ton of problems, like a ton of problems. Exactly. But it would solve headaches for virtually everyone that listens to this show if you could just have one SKU of IO, if you just go and standardize. Yeah. Um, and then, so on, on the cybersecurity side, I, I have been harping on cybersecurity. Like it's not my thing. I just know it's important. And I know it's important for a variety of reasons for like a bunch of years. I, I would hope that people become more cybersecurity conscious. And I think it's very incremental. I am not sure that we're going to get significantly better up until the point that we have some sort of government regulation. That That is never like my hope. I'm, I, Why did you say we're completely opposed in our views? I mean, we, I mean, something's going to happen. But because I, because I think it's going to like you, you think that we need like these massive issues. I think that industry isn't going to change until they're forced to change. Like we've, we've had sure. pipelines that have been breached, right? We've had facilities that, that have been down for a variety of reasons. I think it's the, we're going to need the government to come. Like, I don't think industry as a whole is going to say, yeah, well, yes, let me spend 5% or 10% of my revenue and go fix this cybersecurity problem. Because again, the cybersecurity problem isn't the, let me slap a firewall up. It's a continuous, like basically Damn. we're building another continuous improvement within an organization. And how many organizations have you ever worked for that are good at continuous improvement? Like basically zero. Well, like it rounds down to zero. Um, I've worked so, for more that like fired entire CI departments. Than, like, exactly. So, 
I, I think that that is the other problem with cybersecurity and getting people to be more conscious about it, which is why I'm harping on if you can change admin password, it, it is a good first step and find some way to firewall off your IT and, and your OT. Like th those are good first steps. And then on robotics, I, I'm actually excited. I think we're going to find a lot more non-legacy style implementations. I think that we in the next five years are going to see if we can build, if Fanuc or Kuka or Mitsu or ABB or anyone can build a robot, we're going to go find a way to implement it, right? We're going to find a way to put it at a facility and we're going to find a way to give it a job. I think the labor shortage has been difficult on a lot of people. I think getting rid of the dull, dirty, monotonous, terrible tasks are going to be positives and we're going to see more people valued who work in facilities. And I think we're going to see that because we're going to have to see that. And if we don't get that, we're just not going to have people to work in facilities and we're going to have to automate it or, or robotize it at, uh, at some point. So what do you think I is going to change on the robotic side in, in that scenario? Or are you just going to, you think more of robots? I think more robots. I, I think okay. availability will become a thing. I think cost is going to have to go down. And I think that like, like we saw ABB, like, recently roll out like a new series of cobots again i'm not saying cobots versus robots i'm going to kind of lump them into one thing but if we can make them in volume then we can bring the cost down if we can bring the cost down and we can have more people out there implementing then we're going to have the ability to find other applications to do that like sure so so you, you and i have had a number of conversation on and off stream talking about people and facilities that are like hey i want to install 10 gantry robots for this application. Can we do it in three weeks? Can we do it over the course of two weeks, three weeks from now? And the answers are no. So there is certainly demand. We know there is demand. Like every CNC or every group of CNCs that doesn't have a gantry robot to load and unload, like that is an opportunity. If they can do volume, then we can go through the process of, of load unload with there. So I think, I think all that's exciting. I think we're going to see more robots. I think we're going to have to see more robots. I personally hope we see a bunch of those weird robotic applications uh, like David Nichols and the folks over at Loop are doing. I think we're going to see more robotic applications like Shane is talking about where, hey, we've built like two or three product sized lines with it. And honestly, I think we're going to see, I think we're going to see small robots like Ilian talked about. And I think we're going to see more companies who are like, hey, we have a very limited amount of time to get this right. Let's go simulate it, like what Max is talking about. And I yeah. think most of that simulation is the Fortune, you know, X, right? So be it 500, 5,000, 50,000. I think that that is kind of their target market. And we're going to see more people do that so that we can simulate it and immediately get up and running as opposed to, uh, to, the, to the alternative of like, okay, we have a robot now. Let's go figure it out. Oh, but no. So, uh, so that, that is exciting. Uh, what, what are your thoughts, Vlad? Well, I was going to ask you, Dave, any resources that you've been consuming over the last three months, whether it is books, podcasts, other materials, can you talk to us about that? Absolutely. So I have this book, right? So it's called Synchronous Management Profit-Based Manufacturing for the 21st Century. Mm -hmm. um, th this is a super uh, self-serving book. So Max and I, for On the Shoulders of Giants, we are actually going and reading this through one of the episodes, right? So it is a kind of TOC. So it's kind of like a theory of constraints. So the gentleman who wrote this tree, uh, that's what Max calls him. And that's what I'm going to call him because no one can pronounce his name. And Max actually learned under him. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the books that, that he wrote. And so I, I found it super interesting. Um, yeah, I, yeah, honestly, I found it super interesting. It's a little bit of a, it's a little bit more of a heavy lift, but like the, the first section is called manufacturing as a competitive weapon. Like who can't get up and excited about reading 20 pages on manufacturing as a competitive weapon. Um, and then, so I would say that that's exciting. I've been doing a lot of, you know, looking and research and stuff on, on TOC and lean and six Sigma and kind of all of those things for the work I've talked about and some other work I haven't talked about that, that is coming up in the, uh, in the near future for me. So I would suggest that book. I would also suggest that you guys stay tuned. Uh, Max and I are going to do a live show at some point in the end of April. I think the last week of April, we are physically going to be together on site. We're going to take some time out of that in order to uh, to go through and uh, go through the book and, and talk about that. So you guys uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, Vlad, what, what about you? Like we've got like a bazillion audible recommendations over the last quarter. W- what are you listening to? What are you rating? Um, I mean, I will kind of pitch, you know, the accounting books. So, and I'm going to make a, <laughs> I would say like the more extensive post in general, I think of what it takes to operate a business. Uh, so, I mean, For those of you who maybe don't know, I'm currently based in Canada, even though that I've spent and still continue to work a lot in the U.S., but two books. So first one is Bookkeeping for Canadians for Dummies. So fairly basic, you know, bookkeeping book. Uh, And the second one is Make Sure It's Deductible, Little Known Tax Tips for Your Canadian Small Business. And so, you know, like maybe to get onto like, not in a long discussion over this, but ultimately I think it's important that if you decide to pursue like your own venture, right? Like as me and you are doing, I think you should at the very least understand the basics of bookkeeping and maybe not necessarily do all of it yourself and probably, you know, transition into having somebody take care of it at one point or another. And again, there's tools like I I don't want to get into like the software solutions, but I think that there is gains to be made on at least knowing how your business is doing based on the good bookkeeping practices, right? And at least I think that, again, an accountant is great, but ultimately from, and again, my experience, maybe it's going to be different from everybody, understanding what is deductible gives you an opportunity. And again, I'll give you like one example. You can go to two conferences per year, provided that they you know, directly impact your business in a positive manner for Canadians, at least, that are deductible, right? So just knowing that, like, and you, you can Google that fact or you can get the book and there's a lot a lot more, uh, a lot more information on what is deductible and what is it, like what falls in different buckets, what kind of education you can get. And so you can structure at the very least your activities according to what, uh, you know, is allowed by the CRA or the IRS in the U.S. So I think very important uh, another book that I purchased recently, uh, but a topic that I want to, again, maybe talk about in one of my posts, but it's the skill of selling. And like me me and you, Dave, talked about that quite a bit, right? And I think we can have, again, a whole conversation around that. But ultimately, it I think, and, I, and I've done some kind of like, I would say like personal thinking through this, but everything you do in your life is almost a, as a result of a sale, right? And what I mean by that is, if you're looking for a job, you're selling yourself. If you're looking to, quote unquote, work on cool projects, 
then you're selling an idea, right? As soon as you get into upper management, you're selling the idea of investing money into a project to better a facility, right? So at the end of the day, I think we all have to learn how to, and, you know, maybe that's like the negative connotation of selling where you're trying to maybe trick someone into buying into an idea, but it's more present what you're trying to do in better light so that you get the buy-in of the other party. Um, and so like one of the books that I got recently, and I've, to be honest with you, barely opened it. Uh, it's called Sell Without Selling Out by Andy Paul. And I've been following him as well as a couple of other people on LinkedIn to kind of get, even I'm trying to learn how to sell better. So I'm trying to get more materials, more books and more knowledge in, in that area. So I've been investing also in reading a lot of articles. There's, uh, again, a lot of different software tools that, uh, that you can use that I've been kind of reading through. So selling is kind of the second uh, aspect of running a successful business. But in general, I think everyone should kind of be aware of. No, I think that those are those are very interesting. I know that you and I have had a bunch of conversation uh, around that. Perhaps that that is a a limited series that you and I can consider kind of adding on to uh, to what we're doing. If people are interested in kind of starting a business or or selling, maybe Vlad's path towards being a salesperson uh, would would be the the worst uh, rated uh, podcast in uh, would be the worst rated podcast in podcast history. But no, I think that those are. Certain one of the two, like there's no middle ground for that, but no. So, um, so I think that th those are very good, uh, but both of those are, are very good. I would say kind of that accounting rabbit hole is just a rabbit hole that you can go down and, and then pretty soon you're a public accountant, Vlad. Maybe, maybe you'll go get your CPA, your Canadian CPA. Maybe, maybe that will be the next. Of course you have. Uh, of course you have. So let's go ahead and finish this out on a positive note. Um, Vlad, like your favorite question, the question that you demand I ask everyone is some career advice. So let's get some new career advice from you. Well, I mean, I think the career advice that I'd give anyone at this time is that the market is very, very hot. I think there's a lot of people on LinkedIn, um, I would say, including recruiters from both, you know, third parties, but also end users reaching out in the automation space. I think mm -hmm. it's easier than ever to be able to position yourself um, again as an expert. And I'm not saying mm -hmm. to try again and trick anyone to think that you are an expert, but I think it's easier than ever to learn the required materials, as you've explained earlier in this episode, be able to pick up a skill and have the skills necessary in any field whatsoever, right? So just pick your, uh, I want to say metaphorical poison, if you want to go into cybersecurity, if you want to go into robotics, if you want to learn uh, control systems, I think it's easier than ever. The barriers are very low. Um, obviously, you do have to invest the time and I think the effort, but uh, my recommendation is, you know, just keep trying, keep moving forward, keep applying, talk to recruiters and uh, figure out what's needed because right now I think is the right time. No, I think that that's very good uh, career advice, Vlad. And in fact, I, as I was preparing for this show, I was thinking very similar things myself. And then I thought to myself, Dave, you gave very similar advice at the end of the year. So I have a much simpler piece of career advice, Vlad. I want to suggest for people to learn how to say no, right? Say, say no to customers, tell them that it's not possible, tell them that they shouldn't do it. 
um, say no to employers and, and set boundaries. People will respect you more once you learn how to say no. And that was a very difficult lesson that I had uh, early in my career for, for a bunch of reasons, because you always want to say yes. You want to say, yes, we can do that. Yes, we can get the part. And many times it's unrealistic. Like, yes is either I'm going to go work the next 36 hours to try to go find this thing for you or do the thing when it may or may not matter. And at the end, you have better work life balance and you have you will acquire respect from the people that you're talking to when you tell people no and you set limitations and you're honest with them. I like it. I like it. Yeah, but uh, but Vlad, so good news. We have once again blasted through both the 60, 75, and 90-minute mark of this show. So as we are closely approaching the 100-minute mark, we want to say thank you for everyone. Uh, Let's see. We want to say if you guys have somehow managed to make it this far, please go ahead and like and subscribe and comment and do all of those great things. Find us on LinkedIn. Find the Manufacturing Hub on LinkedIn. Also find us at manufacturinghub.live, which is where you can connect to Vlad and I see this podcast, the Manufacturing Hub, and you can also see Max and I on the on the shoulder of giants. Um, if you guys have not subscribed, hit subscribe on the Solus PLC YouTube page. Uh, we, we maybe want to take credit for when Vlad hits 29,000 subscribers, hopefully next week. And... Uh, you can feel free to go ahead and rate us five stars and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, which is what I think we're calling it now, Spotify and Audible, which you can catch us on all of those. We want to thank you guys for listening as this unsponsored theme, and we just get to talk about all of the fun things that we've been doing. We want to thank all of our sponsors uh, from the past quarter that we've talked about uh, earlier, and we want to tell everyone to tune in next week, Wednesday, live when Preston Hadley comes. Uh, we're talking about machine modernization and all of the who, what, where, when, whys of retrofits, and maybe we've got a couple of special announcements, but until then, we'll see you guys. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you, everyone, for watching. See you next week. Thanks, Dave.